Contending for the faith one verse at a time. Thanks for joining us at Truth Matters Church. As we continue going through Revelation verse by verse, today we embark on a comprehensive look at the book with seven seals, as described in Revelation chapter 5. We'll use scripture with scripture to help us understand what this book is about and what it contains as we prepare to study the seven seals found in Revelation. Here is Pastor Alex. Let's continue now in our study in the book of Revelation. We find ourselves in a new chapter, chapter 5, and the title of our study today is a book with seven seals. And here in the header, you only see chapter 5, verse 1. That is not a typo. If you thought for a second, because we've covered chapter 4 in two lessons, that somehow we will be getting towards the end of this book anytime soon. I'm sorry to break it to you. We're getting back to reality. And this isn't by design. I'm letting the Scripture dictate the pace. In chapter 4, the pace was so that we can take it in chunks. And it was fairly straightforward to work with. But when we get to chapter 5, and the reason why we're now going to walk through this part is because there's a lot of confusion about this book sealed with seven seals. And depending on how we view even this passage, it's going to influence how we're going to view the rest of the passage. So we don't want to get this wrong. So the goal of our study today is to look closely at what this book with seven seals, what it means, what it's communicating, and what is being proclaimed from heaven. So with that, before we get into reading this chapter, and I do try to make it a practice for us when we get to a new chapter to just give us a contextual overview, very high level, so that we know the flow of this book and where we are about to pick it up. At the very beginning of this book, in chapter 1, John gave testimony on how he received this vision. We know that this revelation, this apocalypsis, was given. It originated with the Father, was given to the Son, was given to the angel, was given to John, and then John, in turn, was to give it to the seven churches. And John described his encounter with the risen and glorified Son of Man, and John provided us a description of how Jesus looked, what his posture was, what his attire was, and what he looked like. And we looked closely into those things. And John was commanded to dictate and record this great vision and send it to the seven letters to the seven churches, all located in ancient Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. When we get to chapters 2 and 3, it's the actual letters to these seven first-century churches. And we learned that these letters to these seven churches has a dual audience. It was to the angel over that church and those who are in that church. And we learned that it is a dual audience because when you look at all of the book of Revelation, we're getting introduced to other elect angels who have specific tasks carried out at a specific time. So these letters to these churches began with those angels, but even expanded 
to the other angels, another grouping of angels, even to the very end. In chapter 4, John was taken into heaven and gave testimony as to what he seen and heard. And he began with describing the one sitting on the throne and the power and majestic glory that comes out from the throne. And he also communicated that there was perpetual and unending praise and worship led by heaven's choir team. And that would be the four living creatures and the 24 elders. So even now, while we're talking, there is unending praise and worship led in heaven by four living creatures and 24 elders who are around the throne even now. And now it gets us to where we are in the text in chapter 5. In this chapter, now John is still in heaven, and he turns his attention back to the one sitting on the throne, and he notices something in his right hand, and it was a book with seven seals. And that leads us to the title of our study, A Book with Seven Seals. And I mentioned this. The goal, here's the goal for the time that we have today is what does this vision mean? And what that book sealed with seven seals communicates. And we will see some common interpretations out there. I will give us a summary of what I've come across, which gives us a good idea of the teachings out there on what this book with seven seals are. And then, of course, we're going to compare it with Scripture. And we're going to find the most appropriate interpretation. So without further ado, let's begin our scripture reading for today. Although we're going to cover just the first verse, let us read the entire chapter so that we have the context in our minds. So let's pick it up, shall we, in Revelation 5, beginning verse 1, and I'll be reading from the NES. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked. 
And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Quite a scene, isn't it? But what we'll do is we're just going to focus on the first verse for today's study. So let's look at that, shall we? So John begins this chapter and he says, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. At least to start, this is pretty straightforward. John saw on the right hand of the one sitting on the throne a book sealed with seven seals. I want to ask us a question. Who's sitting on the throne? God the Father. In God the Father's right hand was a book written inside and on back, sealed up with seven seals. We're going to look at this book closely. There is a lot of interpretations as to what that book is or what this vision means. So I have a library of commentaries, and I have been making it a practice and a habit not to run to commentaries, but to run to Scripture. And to use the resources that gives me the original language, its original meaning, what it's communicating, and using comparing Scripture with Scripture. That's been my approach. From time to time, I will look to commentaries just to see what's out there. What potentially have you been exposed to, including myself, as to what this book sealed with seven seals means or represents. And this is a good summary of them. So what we're going to do is we're going to go over this summary and then at the end, after we've looked at Scripture, we're going to see if it passed the test. So here's a summary of some common teachings out there about what this book sealed up with seven seals means or represents. How many of us have heard the title deed of the earth? And the teaching along the line says this, when Adam sinned, He forfeited the title deed of the earth. Something along those lines. Another teaching out there is the title deed of man's inheritance reclaimed by Christ. So although Adam, when he sinned, forfeited the title deed of the earth, it was subsequently reclaimed by Christ. So that's some teachings out there about what this book sealed with seven seals means. There's some teachings out there that says, well, it's the secret purposes of God about to be revealed. Of course, there's, you can't get away from symbolism. Oh, it's just symbolism. This whole vision is just symbolism. And it means something like God's covenant with mankind and God's promises in salvation. That's what this symbolizes. How many of us have heard Israel's divorce certificate? And last but not least, God's judgments. So this is a good idea of the different views out there as to what this book sealed with seven seals means. But to find the interpretation, we're going to do what we've continued to do from the very beginning. 
For example, when we studied the seven letters to the seven churches, we looked to historical backgrounds, and then we looked to Scripture. So that's what we're going to do here. This book sealed with seven seals, we're going to look to historical backgrounds, we're going to look to Scripture, and then we're going to see where we land and what is the best and likely interpretation. Does that sound fair? Historical backgrounds. What we've done with the seven letters to the seven churches, I actually went to historical resources apart from the Bible because the Bible didn't give us a lot of historical backgrounds to work with. A lot of these letters were short, and a lot of the letters weren't mentioned, or at least the city of those churches didn't give us a lot to work with from Scripture. So we have went outside of the Scripture for historical resources. But did you know that the Bible is a historical resource? It's the most ancient of text that we have in our possession. So what better resource to start with for our historical backgrounds than the Bible itself? So I'm cheating a little bit here. I'm going to stay with just the Bible. Although there's external resources out there that would corroborate what we're about to do, but for for historical backgrounds, I'm going to stick with the Bible to understand seals and what that means. And since we're at the last book of the Bible, what better way to start with our historical backgrounds than the very first book? And that is the book of Genesis. The first and only mention of seal was in Genesis 38. And this was in the account of the exchange between Judah and his widowed daughter-in-law Tamar. And I'd like to go here for our first historical backgrounds example concerning seals. And some of us are probably familiar with this story. And allow me to just try to sum this up. When we get to Genesis 38, Judah had three sons at this time. Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Ur, who was the oldest, his wife was Tamar. But Ur died. Then Onan was given to Tamar to fulfill his responsibility under the law to carry the name of his brother. Well, Onan also died, and who was left was Shelah. Shelah at the time was underage. But Judah told Tamar to wait till Shelah was of age before she is given to him. But Judah was afraid to give Tamar to Shelah, thinking that she was cursed. You were married to my first son, he died. Second son, he died. I have my third son. I'm not quite sure I want to give him to you. But nonetheless... He told Tamar, just wait until he is of age. Well, time has passed, and Sheila is of age, and Tamar realized that he wasn't being given to her. So what she did was, there was a time when Judah was on the road, and she learned of it. She goes, I'm going to dress as a prostitute and sleep with him. So Judah solicited her services, not knowing it was Tamar. We're going to pick it up now in verse 18 where after agreeing, so now he's talking to Tamar, and they've agreed to the terms of that transaction in the price of a young goat. And now they're going to iron out some details of that transaction in the form of a pledge. So we'll pick it up now in Genesis 38, verse 18. He, Judah, said to Tamar, what pledge shall I I give you? He didn't have the young goat at the time, but they've agreed that that was the price of that transaction. And she said, well, your seal, your chatham, and your cord 
and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. There's a lot more to the story, but I don't want to get into that right now. But what I want us to see from this most ancient of text, we can see that seal, cord, and staff were significant articles, and it shows who you are and what family you are from. And the seal in the most ancient times, as we'll see in other examples, was often in the form of a signet ring with unique gravings. So if we were to go all the way back to the most ancient of times, what was their driver's license or passport as we would understand it today? At least at the time of Judah, it was a seal, cord, and staff. From Genesis 38, we can see the significance of that seal and its role, and it authenticated your identity and your family. So they didn't have uh, face recognition. They didn't have now with phones, you can just put your fingerprint and it authenticates who you are. Back then, what they had to work with was a seal, cord, and staff. Now that seal or chatham, it was used several other times in the Old Testament. We're not going to go through all of them. I just want us to get an idea. But in the next example I'd like for us to look at is 1 Kings 21, when Jezebel used King Ahab's signet ring to authenticate a letter. What we're, stay with me, what we're looking at is we're looking to Scripture as our historical backgrounds to understand what seal What does seal mean? What does it represent? What does it communicate? Because that's going to help us understand what is this book sealed with seven seals and understanding here, at least sticking with the Scripture, on understanding seal and the significance of it and what it carries, the significance of it. It's going to help us understand when we get towards the end. So stay with me. In 1 Kings 21, here's the context here. Now, King Ahab... He was depressed because he wasn't able to purchase a vineyard from a man named Naboth. Must have been a pretty spectacular vineyard. He coveted this man's land, but he wouldn't sell it to him. So Ahab was depressed. So when Jezebel learned of this, she encouraged Ahab and told him, hey, I'll take care of this. You want that vineyard? Don't be depressed. You're the king. I'll handle it. Her plan was to conspire a plot against Naboth and charge him with blasphemy, invoking the death penalty. Now we're going to pick it up now in verse 8. So she, Jezebel, wrote in Ahab's name and sealed, so Chatham here is the verb, them with his seal, Chatham, which is the noun, and sent letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Naboth in his city. Now she, Jezebel, wrote in the letter saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people and seat two worthless men before him and let them testify against him saying, You curse God and the king, then take him out to stone him to death. So here was Jezebel's plan to please her husband, her, the king. Oh, Naboth? Well, let's proclaim a fast and let's... Let's invite Naboth to sit at the head of the people and let's get two worthless men to falsely accuse Naboth of cursing God and cursing king. Curse the king. 
So to set this in motion, Jezebel wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal, presumably with his signet ring. Jezebel's plan was carried out, and Naboth was stoned to death, and Ahab got his vineyard. But that's not the point what I want us to get from this passage. What I want us to get and glean from this example was how Ahab's authority and his seal are connected. If the king wrote a letter and sealed the letter with his signet ring, it communicates and demonstrates his authority and his seal are connected. In other words, King Ahab's seal made that letter an official order and proclamation from the king. The idea of a king's name and his seal or signet ring, it didn't only apply to the divided kingdom of Israel, but we see that this was also the case under Persian rule. I think we're all familiar with the story of Esther. And I'd like to cross-reference an example here of seal and a signet ring. In Esther chapter 8, the context is a long one, but here's the short of it. When you go back to chapter 3, there was a royal edict was issued, and it was orchestrated by this man named Haman. Haman despised Mordecai, who was Queen Esther's relative. He despised Mordecai and the Jews, and he conspired against them by convincing King Ahasuerus to sign into the law exterminating the Jews, thus making it lawful to exterminate the Jews. By the time we get to chapter 8, Esther intervened and Haman was subsequently executed and his property was given to Esther. However, that didn't negate the law enacted back in chapter 3 when it was lawful to exterminate the Jews. We're going to pick it up now in verse 8 when a counter law was signed. Are 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 you following me? In this account, orchestrated by this man named Haman, who hated Mordecai and the Jews, convinced the king to make it a law protecting the extermination of the Jews. So if you were to kill a Jew, you're protected by law. It was now law. The Jews are lame duck. And there is no, there is no consequence for exterminating them. But by the time we get to chapter 8, there's going to be a counter law that's signed so that the Jews can protect themselves. But I want to pick it up in Esther 8, beginning in verse 8. Here's what the king proposed. He goes, now you, and he's speaking to Esther and Mordecai, he goes, write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring. For a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. So under Persian rule, if a king made into law something that can't be overruled, I think our nation can learn a lot from this, quite frankly. What we're finding is whoever takes office of this great nation, they just undo the things that were signed into law by the prior administration. But in the spirit of the Persian law, you can't overrule you can't negate a law that was signed into bill you know, at that time. Anyhow, in this passage, the king's seal of his name and signet ring 
it's still tied to his authority. In the case of the Persians, a king's seal cannot be revoked. It is the final authority. And the example, it would be comparable if the sitting president of the United States signed a bill into law, but as I mentioned, another president can come in and pretty much undo that, unfortunately. And I want to look at one other example of historical backgrounds concerning seals. And I want to cross-reference Jeremiah, where a seal was associated with a legal deed. Okay? we got to look at it. We'll look at Jeremiah 32. We'll pick it up in verse 42. For thus says the Lord, just as I brought all this great disaster on this people, so I am going to bring on them all the good that I am promising them. Fields will be bought in this land of which you say it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Men will buy fields for money, sign and seal. There's Chatham, the verb form of it. Deeds and call in witnesses in the land of Benjamin, in the environs of Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the lowland, and in the cities of the Negev, for I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. From this passage, we can see that the purchase of a field would include the signing and sealing of a deed. And this would be comparable to an official and recorded title of deed of property today. So for those of us who've purchased a home, there is a title deed that is associated with the ownership So how we know or establish ownership and let's say in the property of buying a house is who is on the deed as the owners. Then legally, whatever the title deed says, that's the rightful owner of that property. So that would be the equivalent here from this ancient text. But from these Old Testament examples, and I think it's good enough for us to have a solid historical backgrounds of seals. A seal is associated with a person's name and family. A seal, depending on context, may be associated with the king's name and his authority. So the issuing of a royal decree would be signed and sealed by the king. In the case of property, a title deed or deed would be signed and sealed, transferring the legal rights of ownership of that property to the new owner. But in all cases... From a historical background's perspective, anything sealed would be official, would be ratified, and legally binding. And it can only be opened by an authorized party. That's what I want us to get. Regardless of the context, whether it's something sealed concerning a person's name or family or associated, let's say, with the reigning king and his authority, or in the case of the property or title or deed, in all those cases of seal, it is official, It is ratified, and it is legally binding. And it can only be opened by an authorized party. That's what I want us to get from this, using the Old Testament. Now let's exposit our book, our verse further. John says, He saw in the right hand of him a book written inside and on back, sealed up with seven seals. So let's exposit this further. Book is biblion which means it's a book, but it can also mean scroll. You know, the scroll that's rolled up? That's also a biblion. So biblion, if you were curious, how did we get our English word Bible? Well, it's from here, the Greek book biblion, and the Bible is a collection of books or a collection of scrolls. 
into one. That's what the Bible means. It's a collection, in this case, of Scripture that were in its original writings on scrolls. In the New Testament, here's something that we should keep in mind. As I looked at Biblion in all of the New Testament, and in every single case, it refers to only these two things. Holy Scripture, Certificate of Divorce. So a Biblion would be any 66 books or epistles would be a Biblion. And Certificate of Divorce. So in the Jewish economy, when they were to write a Certificate of Divorce, and the actual certificate that legalized that divorce would be a Biblion. And that corroborates with our historical backgrounds is that is a legal and ratified document. So let's keep those in play. Trust me, we're going to pull this together at the end, but we're just doing our diligence. We're going to keep both of these New Testament uses in play. Biblion, the scroll, at least in its uses in the other New Testament books, it refers to Holy Scripture and Certificate of Divorce. So to figure out the content in this book, I'm just a curious guy. We have a book in the Father's right hand, written inside and in back. I'm curious, what are the contents in that book? And for that, I want us to cross-reference a similar vision that Ezekiel had that'll give us insight into the contents. What was written in that book? Sealed with seven seals. So I want want us to turn now to Ezekiel 2. He had a similar vision. We'll pick it up in verse 1. Then he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak with you. And he spoke to me. The Spirit entered me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. Then he said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious people who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. I am sending you to them who are a stubborn and abstinent children. And you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, As for them, when, whether they listen or not, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, neither fear them nor their words, though thistles and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions, neither fear their words nor be dismayed at their presence, for they are a rebellious house. But you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious. Now you, son of man, listen to what I'm about, what I'm speaking to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I'm giving you. Then I looked, and behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, a scroll was in it. And he spread it out before me, and what was written on it, on the front and back, and written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. What I want to do from here, I'm going to take Revelation 5, and I'm going to Put it side by side with Ezekiel 2. And hopefully this makes it clearer. So here on the left, Revelation 5, here is our verse. I saw on the right hand of him who, was, who sat on the throne a book written inside and on back, sealed up with seven seals. And on the right in Ezekiel's vision and beginning in verse 9, then I looked and behold, a hand was extended to me and lo, a scroll. Remember, Biblion can be book, 
or scroll. But here we have it translated, a scroll was in it, and I highlighted them the same color. They're, they're similar. When he spread it out before me, it was written on the front and back, and written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. In both visions, in the hand was a book or a scroll that was extended. And that book or scroll had writing inside and front and back. The difference between these two visions is Ezekiel 2 gave us extra detail on its contents and written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. And if we were to take our rules of engagement principles, for example, thou shalt interpret Scripture with Scripture, I want to ask us a question. What can we deduce by comparing Revelation 5 and Ezekiel 2 as to the contents written in John's vision in Revelation 5? Specifically, lamentations, mourning, and woe. So verse, Revelation 5, verse 1, if we were to take the insight that was given that had pretty much saying the same thing, a book or a scroll, and written inside it front and back, and what was written in it was lamentations, mourning, and woe. So Revelation 5, verse 1, when we compare it with Ezekiel 2, it could read it like this. I saw on the right hand of the Father who sat on the throne a book written on inside and in back, and written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. Here's my next question with that interpretation, with Scripture and Scripture. Does that flow in context? Oh, you bet it does. What we're going to find is when these seals are broken, there's going to be lamentations, mourning, and woe. When the seven seals are broken, one by one, we're going to find it brings about these things. In fact, following the seven seals, there will be seven trumpets blown. And in the fifth through seven trumpets, you know what they're called? The three woes pronounced by angels. We're not done. Let's continue to exposit this key verse. John says that that book or scroll was sealed up with seven seals. Can I ask a question? What does seven mean? We can count, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. This book or scroll had seven seals. And the Greek for seals is sphragis. And the idea of sphragis is the same as what we've learned in our Old Testament historical backgrounds use of chatham. A seal is associated with a person's name, family, authority, transfer of ownership, or even divorce. And when a document is sealed, its contents are official, ratified, legally binding, and can be only opened by an authorized party. In the case of Revelation 5, stay with me. Who can we deduce wrote the contents in this book and sealed it with his name and authority? Who wrote the contents inside and front and in back in that book sealed with seven seals. Who wrote it with His authority and His name? Speak up. The Father. God the Father. We can deduce that God the Father wrote in this book sealed with seven seals the lamentations, mourning, and woe. And He sealed it 
with his name and authority. Whatever is written in this book, sealed with seven seals, is from God the Father. Is there any other authority higher than the Father? If he wrote something and sealed it with his name and authority, can anything overwrite it? He is the authority of authorities. And before we deduce further, what I want us to do here, look, we're, you're noticing, have I gone out of the scriptures yet? I'm taking it all, but we're going to bring this all together at the end. But as far as Sphragis is concerned, because I'm still curious, what else is this sealing? What does it signify? What is it also associated with? Because that could also give us some lens into what this vision is communicating. The interesting part is there was no other New Testament author that used Sphragis in his letters except the Apostle Paul. And he used it three other times. And I want us to look at those three since it's a manageable number. And I want to begin with his letter to the Romans. In Romans 4, in this magnificent book concerning the gospel that we received, this masterpiece, when we get to chapter 4, Paul wanted to demonstrate that the blessing given to Abraham, it wasn't just for the Jews, and it wasn't, a, and it wasn't just for the circumcised but it was also for the uncircumcised this promise was given. And I want to pick it up in verse 9. Paul asks, Is this blessing, and it's the blessing spoken of by David in the Psalms, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account, then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited while while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while circumcised. I want to take a pause here. You know, part of the gospel message, and here's where a lot of the Judaizers got it wrong and just didn't see it. When they even look at Abraham, who they claim that they're children of, just look at the timing on when faith was credited to him as righteousness. Was it before the giving of the law or after? It wasn't after the law, but it was actually before. In other words, When faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness, he wasn't circumcised yet in the flesh. Circumcision was given as a sign to signify the covenant that God made with him. So Paul's point here is just look at Abraham. He was he's not only the father of the circumcised, ultimately you know, the 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 people of Israel, but also he is the father of the uncircumcised, meaning the father of faith of both. Let's pick it up in verse 10. How then was it credited while he was uncircumcised or uncircumcised? He says, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while circumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them and the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith that our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Here's the translation. God legally ratified the blessing given to Abraham by giving him the sign of circumcision, a seal, a sphragus of the righteousness of faith. What I want us to take away here, there's a correlation between sphragus and righteousness. 
So when God made this covenant with Abraham, how did he legally ratify it? He gave him a seal, the sign of circumcision, which was the seal of the righteousness of faith. He's like, I'm ratifying this covenant that I made with you, that you would be the father of faith to all who believe, and that will be a seal of the righteousness of faith, and that would be legally ratified even from heaven. Paul's second use of sphragis is in 1 Corinthians 9. In Paul's defense of his apostleship, he makes mention of a seal. We'll pick it up in verse 1. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal, the sphragis of my apostleship in the Lord. And here's the translation of this passage. So here Paul had to defend his ministry even to this church that he helped plant and shepherd. But Paul says, you want proof that I'm an apostle? He goes, you're my proof. The fact that you received and believed the gospel preached by him. In other words, the believers themselves by virtue of their faith are proof that Paul's apostleship was from heaven. Paul's saying, you want to know how my apostleship is authenticated? The gospel message that I'm delivering to you, that I received from Christ Himself. You received it and you believed it. And you, were, you are the seal of my apostleship. The fact that you received the gospel message that I received from Christ, who He received from His Father. It's from heaven. But here's the takeaway. There's also a correlation between seal or sphragis and authenticity. Seal and sphragis sphragis, and authenticity. And we'll look at one Paul's last mention of sphragis in his second letter to Timothy. And after he instructed Timothy to be diligent to present himself as a workman approved by God, not being ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth, Paul goes on to tell him in 2 Timothy 2, verse 16, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection is also, has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having the seal, the sphragis, the Lord knows those who are is and everyone who names the name of the lord is to abstain from wickedness here's the translation of this short passage believers have a seal a sphragis because we belong to the lord and the lord knows who are his here here's another way to say it believers our adoptions as sons and daughters have been ratified by the highest court in heaven by god the lord yahweh himself our adoption as God's children when we believed and have been adopted into his eternal family we in effect were sealed our adoption as sons and daughters we can say has been sealed what do we have here on on this side of earth if you were to adopt someone you go to family court or something and whenever that if that adoption is approved by the judge of the court and you can say ratify that. Well, us, our adoptions as sons and daughters in that same way has been sealed by the highest court in heaven and by God the Father himself. 
So if you ever <laughs> questioned whether or not you're a legitimate child or a rightful heir, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, your adoption has already been sealed by the highest court in heaven, and nothing can override that. It affirms our eternal security, doesn't it? Here's the takeaway from this passage. There is a correlation even between Sphragis and our legal adoption. But in these three passages, in Paul's use of Sphragis, it was associated with righteousness of faith, authentication of Paul's apostleship, and our legal adoption as sons and daughters. Okay, you ready to pull this all together now? We're trying to get this right. Back to our key verse. When John says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. There is even several layers and deductions to this, but I'm going to attempt to summarize them for us. Here's what this verse is communicating when we take Scripture with Scripture. When John says, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals, Here's, by, here's our deduction. God the Father was the one who wrote the content, contents in that book or scroll. Amen? Is there, any, is there any pause or concern of that? By deduction, after writing the contents, God the Father then sealed them shut with the seal of His name and authority. I want to suggest to us, I don't know if you ever thought about this, you know, we, we've learned that the throne in heaven has wheels on fire. Has it ever dawned on your mind that the Father has jewelry? And that this breastplate of judgment with the 12 precious stones on that is part of the great, um, the high priest attire, that somehow that's also a picture of the Father wearing jewelry on his throne as the high priest? Did it ever dawn on your mind, or would it be so far fetched that the Father has a signet ring? I mean, comic books run with this kind of idea, like the Infinity Gauntlet and Thanos in the whole Marvel universe, that this all-powerful gauntlet has all power. But would it be so far-fetched that our Father has jewelry? Because we saw precious stones, jasper, sardius, emerald, radiating from the throne around chapter 4. And here in chapter 5, Perhaps a signet ring. And there is more. When John says, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside on the back, sealed up with seven seals, by deduction, because God the Father wrote and sealed them shut, he is the highest authority. It is legally ratified in the highest court in heaven. It is legally binding and absolutely irrevocable. So if God the Father, who is the highest authority wrote an edict or he wrote the contents in that book. Nothing in all creation can, uh, can revoke, challenge what he's written. Sadly, if we somehow think that you know, here on this side of heaven, especially here in the United States, in our judicial system, we can appeal to the highest court of the land and that is the U.S. Supreme Court but there's lower courts. But the idea is you can appeal if you're not satisfied with the outcome of that case. But the way we're set up here, the highest court in the land is the U.S. Supreme Court. 
and that can be overridden. Well, in God's economy and in heaven, He is heaven's supreme court. And when the Father wrote something and He sealed it with His signet ring, so to speak, with His name and authority, nothing can override that. It is legally binding and absolutely irrevocable. And as for its contents, when we considered Ezekiel 2, we deduce that the nature of the contents that were written by the Father is lamentations, mourning, and woe. So if you're wondering, these judgments contained in these seals that is followed by these trumpets and that is followed by these bowl wrath judgments, the Father determined them all. In all seven seals preceded by the seven trumpet judgments and preceded by the bowl judgments, God the Father determined those judgments. And I want to ask us a few questions and we're going to wrap up here shortly. Taking from what we've learned so far, who was the primary object of these judgments? God the Father wrote judgments and He sealed it with His name and authority. Who was the primary object of these judgments? I'll give us a hint. I made a summary statement when we wrapped up our Daniel series as the Bible being centered on a certain people in a certain geographic location. So these judgments, who is the primary objects of the judgments that are written in this book or scroll in the Father's hands? The children of Israel and the land of Israel. Who is the secondary object of these judgments? It's not just them. These judgments is beyond them. I'll give us a hint. We just studied seven letters of them. The church. Specifically, the unrepentant and the dead church. And who are also implicated by these judgments? Hint, those who dwell on the earth. Who would that be? Everyone else. You have the people of Israel. You have the church. And you have those who dwell on the earth. Everyone else. These judgments written by God the Father take into account all of them. All of mankind. Here is the biblical interpretation. The books sealed with seven seals are the Father's judgments beginning with the household of God and then unbelievers. Is this not what Peter warned us in 1 Peter 4? Pick it up in verse 14. He goes, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, he goes, you are blessed because the Spirit of the glory the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. He goes, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but it's to glorify God in this name. Listen to Peter. For it is time for judgment to begin where? In the household of God. And if it begins with us first, then what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if, if it is with difficulty that the, righteousness is, the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. The book sealed with seven seals are the Father's judgments beginning with the household of God, the church, that would include the church by extension, and then the rest. So let's close this up now. And this is back to my earlier comment. Remember, here's a list of the common interpretations out there. Which of these are true? 
Let's start with the first two. Teachings out there that says that this book sealed with seven seals is the title deed of the earth or a, deed, a title deed of man's inheritance. I don't want to say this. Those are truth implications, meaning Christ, in a way, is reclaiming and restoring paradise for us that was lost at the fall. But if we're being technical and staying true to our ROEs, I don't believe that the book or scroll is a title deed of anything. Ezekiel 2 settled that in my mind. What is written in it were lamentations, mourning, and woe, for that is precisely what happens when each seal was broken. Even though Christ does restore the earth at the end, the regeneration begins, and His kingdom is on earth, I don't believe that that was a title deed of anything. It was the Father's judgments beginning with the household of God. And if we take our learnings from our miniseries, Daniel, so the people of Israel, from the time of their rejection of Christ, even till now, there's going to be what is called the final indignation. God's punishment of his people is going to come to an end. And this is part of that ending. They will experience Jerusalem's tribulation, the abomination of desolation, the massacre of the Jews, the taking over of the temple and of the land, and they will be taken away into captivity again. But that'll be towards the end of their indignation. So it began with the household of God, and so will this vision. And these seals begin with them. Doesn't it kind of narrow it down? Like, when is the first seal broken? Okay, well, how is the Father dealing with his rebellious people? So when we get to the rider in the white horse without a bow, who are we going to focus on? The people in the land of Israel. Then we know, depending on what happens, okay, this is the first seal. But we are in the final period. God, is, God the Father is wrapping up his discipline of his people, beginning with that first seal. How about this one? The secret purposes of God about to be revealed. And then there is some truth to this, and I would agree with some of that teaching, as long as the secret purposes are qualified, meaning God's judgments weren't revealed before the writing of this book, and now it is revealed, at least beginning now, with the seven churches and the churches to follow. Symbolism. I respectfully disagree that this book sealed with seven seals is just merely symbolism of any kind because the text itself didn't lend itself to be understood as symbolic. And I want to say this, when we get later in this book, there will be symbolism. There will be the dragon, the beast from the earth, a woman clothed with the sun, a red dragon, a male child, the great harlot. But even in those instances, because the scripture, it's lending itself that this is symbolism to mean something. What are we going to do? We're going to go to Scripture to let us understand what is being communicated. Because even if symbolism is being used, there is always a literal meaning and a literal fulfillment. A literal, it'll literally come to pass all the time. Nothing ever in Scripture is just symbolism and stays there. It manifests itself and it is fulfilled, literally all the time. Israel's divorce certificate. There's some teaching out there. And I want to say this. There is some truth as part of the final indignation 
concerning His people. Can we say in effect that the unrepentant people of Israel who refused, who stoned the prophets like their fathers, so to speak, who share in shedding the blood of Christ, their Messiah, is there some truth in that once these seals are broken and the judgment is beginning with, let's say, even the people of Israel, could we say, in effect, He is divorcing them? There is some truth to that. The unrepentant. There is this implication that part of the judgment is to judge them and then divorce them. So I'm, 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 I'm not necessarily going to discredit that, but I don't think that's what this is, so to speak. Although that is an outcome of these judgments. And last but not least, God's judgments. I say amen. If you ask me, I believe that this is the best and appropriate interpretation. A book written inside and on back, sealed up with seven seals, are God the Father's judgments. It is supported when we looked at Scripture with Scripture. It is supported by the immediate and proceeding context. We will find that these seven seals are actual judgments administered to those on the earth, beginning with the household of God and then the unbelieving world. And these judgments will come upon them like a thief at a day and hour they did not expect. So now that we know what the book sealed with seven seals is, we're going to pick it up in verse 2 for our next study. When a strong angel proclaimed in a loud voice, who is worthy to open and break, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And I think we all know who was found worthy, but we're going to allow the drama to unfold as finally the attention will be turned away from the Father and the one who sits on the throne to the one who was found worthy. And he's going to be the center spotlight from here on out. So come back and we will continue with this scene. Amen? Amen. Thank you so much for listening to Truth Matters Church today, and we deeply appreciate you studying along with us. To learn more about this Bible teaching ministry, visit truthmatterschurch.org. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.